You're listening to Look at My Records. This is episode 178, and I'm your host, Tom Gallo. This edition of the podcast features an interview with songwriter and composer Michael Zapruder. The Austin-based musician released his fourth full-length Latecomers in October of last year, a collection of sonically vivid tracks that delve both inward to dissect domestic intimacy and outward to explore the wasteland of modern American life. The album was about a decade in the making and follows the 2010 release of Pink Thunder, a collection of free verse pop art songs made from the poems of more than 20 contemporary American poets, including James Tate, David Berman, and D.A. Powell. We talked at length about both latecomers and Pink Thunder, plus we touched on Michael's background, including his relationship with his two creative siblings, his time spent in Nepal during his teenage years, why he was drawn to study music composition at a high level, his memories of recording at tiny telephone studios in San Francisco during the mid to late aughts, and more. Zapruder also gives us a little insight into what it's like to score an opera, and he picks some great records from my collection, including some choice cuts from Silver Jews, Elvis Costello, Kate Bush, and more. We'll dive into our interview right after the jump. If you're interested in hearing more episodes of Look at My Records, they're available on all streaming platforms. Please remember to rate, review, like, and subscribe on your platform of choice. I also encourage you to check out the Look at My Records website where you can find reviews, premieres of new music, playlists, and a whole lot more. Check it out at lookatmyrecords.com. Super excited for this edition of Look at My Records. I'm here with songwriter Michael Zapruder. How are you doing today? I'm doing great, Tom. I'm really glad to meet you. I'm really glad to be here. Yeah, me too. You put out an awesome record last year called Latecomers. Really great stuff. Everyone got to check it out. We're going to talk about it at length. But as mentioning before we started recording that you have this really cool interesting background you've done a lot of stuff in the music world a lot of different unique product projects but also i was doing my research for this interview came upon an interview that you did with your two siblings as well your brother mm-hmm. matt and your sister alexandra so it was really cool to see that they're both also creative people. Your brother, Matt, is a poet. Your sister is a writer. So I was just curious, what was it like growing up with siblings who were similarly creative-minded? That's a great question. And, um, you know, it's funny because when we were growing up, we were, I think, like dormant kids. We weren't like these creative... We weren't particularly creative kids. Um, we were inquisitive, and and because of where we grew up and the kind of culture of our family, we were exposed to a lot of uh, a lot of people from all over the world. We were very lucky 
in that way and and you're from the dc you're from the dc area right yeah born in dc and then grew up in the burbs right outside of dc um so like we i mean i will say that like we listened to really we were lucky to kind of run across some really cool music uh the discord punk rock scene was happening like right where we were we we were there um towards the tail end of you know right spring was active when we were there and um you know the end of minor threat and a bunch of amazing bands and so we had a lot of good music around and then my mom works still works at the smithsonian um and so there was like you know culture and art kind of circulating around but um our parents were really focused on academic yeah. achievement, um, which we all responded to in different ways. Mine was to be the <laughs> not <laughs> good, <laughs> not successful student, <laughs> um, you know. But um, it was it was sort of in there. I think what what it was is a long a appreciation for creative stuff, but it was dormant, like I said. So. When did you start to really appreciate music and then create your own music? I know you were a member of bands throughout the 90s, and you had mentioned getting into a lot of the great punk and hardcore stuff that was happening in Washington, D.C. during your youth. But at at this point, your music is totally very far away from anything that sounds like that. So when did you... you start playing in bands that were of that ilk uh, of the bands that you were diving into in the DC area and how did it continue to evolve for you? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, I, it's weird. I always sort of had this feeling I knew that music was going to be the thing for me, but I had real trouble in school. I got kind of rejected from every chorus or band I tried to join in school. And then I actually, you know, it's funny. I, I um, I think I absorbed the ethical point of view of Discord Records, yeah. very strongly. But like Brazilian pop music from the '60s and '70s is just as ethically oriented, but it's musically totally different. Yeah, and so that was kind of the direction I went. I knew I was going to be more musically sort of involved. Um, so, but the first bands I was in were like just songy bands you know um they weren't like punk i was never really in a punk rock band um but i love that music um so yeah and i just it took me a long time to find my own thing as a songwriter um so i was in other bands for a long time yeah what what changed as far as you deciding that you wanted to begin writing your own song and doing your own thing well, you know, it, I think what changed was I figured out what I didn't want to do. My problem for a long time was that I was like, I wanted to have a band that was part John Cage and part Os Mutantes and part Fugazi. And like, it was just too, I was too um, uh, scattered, kind of. My influence, I liked everything. And um, it wasn't until later that I started, you know, I started listening to a lot of music and I started hearing a lot of music I didn't didn't really like that much yeah. or did wasn't that into and I was like, "Oh, I'm not going to do that. 
I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to do that. And it started to carve off things that even things I liked that I just wasn't, I wasn't going to be able to do it. And so it just took me a long time to figure out kind of the core of what really mattered. And it was just out of a excessive curiosity, really. Yeah. And at a certain point too, and I also thought this was really interesting about your story as a musician and songwriter was that you started studying music at a very high level composition, despite the fact that previously you were self-taught and playing music in bands and things like that. Why did you decide that you wanted to more formally study music? And how did that change the way you approached songwriting? That's yeah, a great question. Um, I think there's a couple parts of it. I mean, it always has bothered me personally. Like I'm devoting my life to music, but I can't read this melody. Yeah. I can't read it. And there are lots of musicians who don't care at all and don't need to care. And I, I have total respect for that. But for me personally, there was always this feeling of like, I want, it's like, I want to explore music in every possible way. And so the fact that I couldn't read or I couldn't look at a score and kind of get a sense of what was going on. And I was also writing for instruments, like even some of my earlier records have like parts for oboe or English horn and trying to write for harp and all this kind of stuff. And so for me personally, I felt like it was a missing piece. Um, that was part of it. Um, also, I had a lot of early rejection from yeah. academic music. And so there's an element of like, you know, it might sound cheesy, but like healing for me to kind of get that, incorporate that into my musical world. Um, and uh, yeah, those are, I mean, those are a, a couple of things. And then, you know, part of it too was like, I was making these records and they were getting more and more involved. I made this record, Pink Thunder, which was yeah. poem songs for through my brother and, and many of his colleagues, these amazing poets. And it was so hard to make. It was really took a long time and it was really pretty expensive. And then my wife and I had kids and, and I was kind of like confronted with this thing of like, I could go to the studio and spend a lot of money or whatever relatively a lot of time to make one record. But when you compose, you can sit in your studio and there's no overhead to the actual creative part. Yeah. Right? You're just writing it either on paper or notation software. And what you do with that, like there could be hundreds of definitive performances of that piece later. As opposed to putting all your resources into this is the actual record performance, you put all your energy into creating a blueprint or a set of instructions or whatever, and then you can have... So that that was part of it, too. It kind of opened up new options. And that was because of Pink Thunder, working with these poets and it, working with stuff that wasn't my words. I was compositionally oriented, and I was like, this is very liberating and large to not be writing about myself. Yeah, Pink Thunder is excellent, and the whole concept behind it, really intriguing to me. You mentioned you adapted a number of poems, some written by your brother and other poets. 
uh, and you released it back in 2012. I'm very curious about what the overall process was like putting together a record like that when you didn't write the lyrics and you're just composing the music and just the follow-up to that moving on from pink thunder to now latecomers where you're writing lyrics again and doing everything compositionally as well what was the transition like to move from that project back to a, a more traditional uh record where you're doing everything mm -hmm. yeah i mean Pink Thunder was really challenging to make. It was amazing. I mean, first of all, those poets are just, they're like fantastic artists, uh, you know, and it was so inspiring to me coming from like a rock music background. Much as I love the music, uh, there's a lot of um, impression management and a lot of, you know, it's a performing art and it kind of, the poets didn't carry themselves with any of that. Yeah. And their work was reaching really deep in a way that many, many songwriters just don't even think to reach. And so Pink Thunder at its heart was about, for me, like proving like songs can do, can try to do what poems do. And so, there's so many great artists and there's so many great songwriters and record makers and people are are doing great stuff and have been doing great stuff. So I wasn't really like saying that songwriters aren't being ambitious enough. Um, but there was a part of me that wanted to demonstrate like, hey, I'm going to take this, I'm going to melt down the music. It's like hot wax and here's the shape of the poem. I'm not going to change the poem at all. I'm just going to sing it and then I'm going to press it into the music. And so you're going to get a song in the shape of this form that this poet created. And they all worked because the poems are so good. And so in a way, it was like a demonstration of possibility for me. Like, so that was the source of Pink Thunder. Um, and it was challenging to make and very challenging to perform, although it was really fun. I performed at a bunch of poetry venues um, where everybody knew the poets, which was really fun because we were like, you know, isn't James Tate amazing or isn't, you know, so, and then in terms of like going back to latecomers um, and writing songs again, I mean, it was, it was just going back to what I already knew. So I didn't really think too much about it. Yeah. Although latecomers really took a long time to finish, uh, became a bit of an ordeal. <laughs> yeah. Cause it's such a unique project that you, sounds like you definitely approached very differently than just writing a regular record so another thing before we get into latecomers a little more i thought it was cool that you recorded your 2009 album dragon chinese cocktail horoscope at tiny telephone in mm -hmm. san francisco over the past year i've in interviewed a lot of people associated with that studio including john vanderslice and uh, it was yeah really cool to to talk with him learn about what an institution that studio was now it's closed the san francisco location and you made a great record there i was checking it out it's really really good and since Thanks. it's closed now i just love to hear about what your experience was like recording there and and what you remember about it oh man i remember tiny so well i mean i did i mixed my second record there made the whole third record there i love 
I love John. I love the studio. I mean, the thing about and I'm and I'm also really I still work with Scott Solter, who worked with Vanderslice, John Vanderslice for a long time and up to a certain point. And um, so Dragon Chinese Cocktail Horoscope, which, by the way, congratulations on getting the name right. It's like <laughs> the, virtually impossible to remember. So, or um, um, but I mean, Tiny Telephone had the ethos of like kind of like um really good focus on the things that mattered to a certain yeah. group of artists right which is like i want this weird thing to sound amazing right or like i think scott at one point and john probably also called it like high lo-fi yeah or you know where it's like yeah this is a this is a mr microphone and it we're gonna just bring it into focus and put it right up there with you know what what somebody else might want to, you know, where somebody else might want to put like a violin or something. And so it just had a spirit because it had all these great keyboards and, cre- you know, things that you could be creative with. It had a, like a weirdly, insanely comfortable couch in the control room, like just like a, you know, vortex of, you know, lounging. <laughs> <laughs> um, but it also had history yeah. And John has great taste and just gets it. And so it was like going to your, it was like, it was, it was, you went there and you were like, there's everything here that I would have picked if I knew to pick it. And um, I love Tiny Telephone. I'm so glad that I got to be a part of that scene because I think the, there's so much great music made there. Um, yeah, it's great. And Scott Solter is a huge part of the work that I've always done. And so I also met Scott through, through tiny telephone. Um, yeah. Cause I know you were a part of that San Francisco Bay area scene throughout the two thousands until you moved to Austin. You mentioned about six years ago, what was it like being a part of that scene? And how do you think working with, people like Scott and John and other musicians in and around that music scene uh, influence your songwriting maybe that you still take with you today and that you, you know, had in mind when you were recording Latecomers? That's such a great question. Well, I mean, I made some really great friends and especially John Bernson, who I don't know if you're familiar with John. He's had a band called X-Rays and his new record is... Uh, called Higher Lows, his new band, you know, and we started a label called Howell's Transmitter, which yeah. is, we've put out 20 some records over the years. I think the ethos of the Bay Area is like, um, it's, it's unique, you know, it's definitely its own place. And there's a, there's an edge there in a way, like people are serious and hard to impress but there's also like a real appetite for kookiness in, yeah, and totally. sort of like Bay Area totally. kind of goofy thing. It's like, it, you know what it is? It's because it's so cool there. It, that, and the feeling is that it's, it's so like, it feels like such a cool place that you could be playful. Like, the, I don't know. I mean, 
that may have come across sounding really annoying. I didn't mean it to. No, no, I totally get exactly like this what you're like, saying. And talking yeah, to some of the okay. other people involved, I could absolutely. That description is spot on. Yeah, yeah. So I mean, so but 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 in a way, like it was also like, especially moving to Austin, you know, in the Bay Area, there were like not that many places to play. You know, thank God for the makeout room. The makeout room was like the tiny telephone of venues for me and for a lot of other people. Um, but the number of venues would was kind of dwindling over the years, especially after the dot com. You know, kind of everything yeah. started change after two thousand and. Um, so like, it was, I mean, it was, it was interesting. We had our pocket and especially John and I, and um, Bernson and I, and the Howells Transmitter, like community, um, there were lots of little pockets like that. Um, people doing cool stuff. Um, but it felt to me like, um, a scene that was like delicately connected, you know, we were delicately connected to each other and interconnected. Maybe it's partly because the city, San Francisco is so, is all these little neighborhoods and each neighborhood feels like its own Island in a way. Yeah. Because of the Hills or whatever, just, but anyway, it was, I mean, it was a great place. And I think the main thing is just like a certain, a certain expectation for creativity, like bring something that I, that hasn't been done before. You know, you couldn't just get up and be like a broad commercial artist. And so yeah. it just wouldn't make a lot of sense. Um, and so that was, that was a nice place to be creative. It was beautiful. Yeah. And what about the label Howell's transmitter? How'd you wind up starting that? And why'd you want to start your own label? Yeah, we started that because John and I were doing a lot of stuff together and um, we had John's wife is a theater director. So when we first started, it was like an arts collective. And but I think it was one of those things where um, we weren't getting our music released by other labels. So we created our own platform and then released our music and released music by other other artists like Charles Atlas is a great band in San, in San Francisco at that time. Instrumental, sort of minimal, almost like Satie meets low kind of band. And, um, you know, it was just one of those things where it's just like a, lots and lots of other people like just DIY. Yeah. Thing. We're, we're not finding it out there. So we're going to turn that into our own strength and we're just going to come together and do it. And, it's just kind of that simple. Yeah, totally. And Latecomers, great record. You pieced it together over an extended period of time, started working on it in 2011, came out last year in 2020. Have you ever written and recorded a record over that long of a period? And just generally, what was the, the process like of putting it together over a nine-year period? Yeah. Um, I've never done that before and i i hope never to do it again <laughs> i mean it was kind of funny you know my first my working title for the record when it, we started it was thou shalt be new that was like my and i had this feeling of like i'm i need to be new but also the world is gonna make you new whether you want to be or not you know things happen um things change 
And so I had this idea for this big record with tons of songs on it that were all going to be, you know, this is a folky kind of thing. And this is like a driving, like weird. Th- and I didn't want to calculate. I just wanted to just put it all out there. The only problem was I was overcommitted and unprepared when we started the record. It just, I booked the studio and then I just didn't have time to get as ready. So we started all these songs and they weren't really clear. And so I had the combination of a lot of songs that would have been hard to bring together into a record in the first place. And not quite, being like 80% of the way there, and so it kind of just took on a little bit of a life of its own because I could never tell. I was sort of like, I think maybe we're almost ready to turn the corner. So every year we'd book another session. For like three or four years, we recorded at Prairie Sun in Cotati, California, which was where we did the first session. Then we went to um, Decibel, which was a San Francisco studio, for like a week. And then... We did record at the Hangar in Sacramento, which is um, where Tape Op magazine. Oh, yeah, is I have made. a subscription. I didn't, yeah, I didn't yeah. Know that. Cool. Oh my God, that place was amazing. Yeah. I think it closed, but it was great. And um, and it just wouldn't come together. I couldn't. I did some stuff at New Improved Recording with Eli Cruz, who. Anyway, so like, long story short, at the same time, I was applying to. I was leaving my job and applying yeah. to a master's program and then a doctoral program. So once that started, it was a, I, you know, I was busy. I was really busy. Yeah. And we had young kids at the time. So it just took forever. And then t- jumping to the end, I was like, okay, at the end, I, we had 20, 25 songs that we were working on. And then at some point, three years ago, two and a half years ago, I, I emailed Scott Solter. I was like, these eight songs, I think, could go together. Would you please just, I'm going to send them to you. Just, just, just make them, make them something I can sing to. And so Scott really did this, this creative, like a lot of the sound of the record and the textures and was Scott's artistry. And then he, he sent it back to me and then I sang into those tracks and we co-produced and finished it that way. It was hard. Yeah, it's it's so interesting too because this is something that you started nine years ago, and then these significant life events started to happen for you. Different things going on in your life, including studying composition on an even higher level than you already had. So, did your vision for what you wanted these songs to sound like and ultimately be change significantly from when you first started them? Um. Yes. I mean, it d- they definitely changed a lot. Um, some things were there from the beginning. I knew I wanted this superposition kind of idea, this poly, like more than one meter going on. So a lot of times there'll be like a little triplets also, but they'll also be like twos and threes. And I just had this intuition from the beginning that I wanted that kind of a texture, rhythmic kind of complexity underneath a song. But um but it's funny because Latecomers was like the the ordeal I had to go through. I was I felt so defeated by that record all the way up until it came out. Like even after we finished mixing and mastering it, I'd heard it so much. It had been over so many years. I, I, you know, I was full of doubts about like 
is this even good? I couldn't tell. It was a record. I don't know. It was a record where I like. I was pretty lost in it, and so um, it wasn't until after it came out, and I got a little distance, and I said, you know, I sort of, I feel really good yeah. about it. I love the record, but man, when we were in it, even through the finishing the record, um, I wasn't like I'm a. I'm now, I have a doctorate in music and now I know what to do. It was more like the more I learned, the less I felt like I had, the less, you know, I was just like, I'm yeah. defeated by this thing. Please, yeah. God, let me finish it. And the, we were mixing it <laughs> and I would get the mixes and I would be like, how could it not be done yet? How could we, you know, like I was just <laughs> desperate to be free yeah, of to it. to finish it. It was yeah. really, really hard. And now I feel really a way different, like, I feel liberated and cleansed, yeah. but man, it was tough. Yeah, it's tough holding on to something for a long time, finally letting it go and being done with it. Very mm -hmm. freeing feeling, and it's definitely an excellent uh, eight-song collection. Sounds great, and I've really enjoyed listening to it, so kudos on that. Hey, thanks. I think it was, well, it was really interesting that you have this song, New Quarantine, on the record and as we just mentioned this is a record that's been in the works for a while so it's a song that you originally wrote with i guess a certain intention or meaning and then this unthinkable pandemic happens and all of a sudden it really takes on this completely new meeting so just tell us a little bit about what intention you brought to that track originally, and then what did it feel like to have it really take on this completely new meaning, uh, given the current state of the world? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a great question. Yeah, that was inspired by um, like Latin American protest folk music that, you know, just that whole genre. Of, yeah. um, not that I know a lot about that. I, I'm, I know some about it, but... Um, so I took this form, which is called a decima. It's like a 10-line form. I think it's eight, be eight beats per form per uh, line. And then, um, uh, and then um, a certain weird rhyme scheme. And that just led me into this sort of satirical kind of writing. And I guess what I was thinking about, I mean, a lot of latecomers is about... Um, I, I think of it like um, trying to make good choices in in bad times, you know, and like, so for me, I think, and that, that song is like about, uh, it's about like a neighborhood where everybody thinks they live in paradise, but they actually live in a just grotesque, you know, kind of horrible place. And so um, when the pandemic hit, I felt like, I didn't feel any sense of vindication or anything like that. It was a coincidence that yeah. the song had the name Quarantine in it. But I also wasn't surprised because I think, you know, and a lot of the record is struggling with this stuff. Like, I really do think just the basic formative concepts, if you can even call them that, of our culture are, there's so much toxic there's so many toxic building blocks in in it and so like 
And and with climate change and everything, you know, I feel like we may well be entering a century of interruptions, you know, and yeah. COVID is the first one. But like, you know, we've had to boil our water a couple times here in Austin. You know, we we had this freeze a few months ago. Yeah, oh man. Yeah. You know, like, and, and there are wildfires in California. You know, everybody's going through it in their own place. And you have flooding in the New, New York area yeah. like seven years ago or whatever, where your basic stuff just is like, oh, yeah, no, the subway isn't working. Yeah. No, you got to boil your water. You got So I kind of just like I've been worried or concerned about that for a while. And so I guess what I'm trying to say is like new quarantine is about like toxic values and the grotesqueness of like what we value in a way. Um but the quarantine thing is sort of just like its own separate track like they happen to kind of overlap but i yeah. don't see them as uh, but anyway that was a strange coincidence or fel felicitous in a certain way i guess yeah totally i thought it was cool that you spent part of your teenage years in nepal and you kind of dive into it on chinese cruiser it kind of delves into that period of your life uh were you able to gain a little more perspective on how those experiences shaped you kind of from this separate vantage point where you're thinking about it and then writing a song about it? And and what did you learn about yourself? Oh, man. You know, it's funny. I think about Nepal still like every day, probably. I mean, it's like it was such a formative thing. So I grew up in the suburbs of D.C. And for me, like going to Nepal was I was kind of trying to break break myself and remake myself into something bigger than sort of the suburban, you know, suburban yeah. kid that I might have been otherwise. And it really did that because, you know, you're somewhere where you see, you know, I remember seeing people by the side of the road, like in the mountains of Nepal where they were breaking rocks with other rocks and then putting them in baskets and, putting them on their heads and like carrying them around. I mean, like, you know, really just brutal slave kind of conditions. Yeah. And, and just like being in a place where there was no running water, electricity, no airplanes flying overhead. The main thing I think for me, aside from any social stuff or even cultural stuff was like the condition of being a human animal on the earth that everybody has been in until about for humans, you know, uh, let's say a couple thousand years ago, but yeah. even like 250 years ago, the weather and the, you know, diurnal cycles and all that stuff. Like I tuned in to that feeling out in the mountains, especially in this remote Tibetan village. Like there's a sort of this feeling of like, the existential predicament of being alive. And I still, you know, I went away last week for a week to write music for a new record. And it was all about that. When I get the chance to get back to that quiet thing, it's disturbing and lonely in a way, but it's powerful. So I think I hit that it's like a power source for me somehow. It, it was great. And Chinese Cruiser is just also one of those songs, like, where did you want to be by now in your life? And like, I'm just thinking about, you know, 
the image of these bikes, these big Chinese metal bikes that we were given by, I went over there on a college program and like, um, they gave us these big bikes and we would just ride around Kathmandu in these, I think they were, I forget what, what they were pigeon or something. I forget what they were called, some kind of bike. And, um, you know, how you look back at yourself as a kid, you know, riding around on your bike and it's just kind of one of those things looking back you're far away. What does it what does it mean to go far away? What gets solved and what doesn't? How does it help things? And I don't know. Yeah. I thought it was also great how half of latecomers is kind of internal looking, the other half is more outward looking. And based on what you had said a little earlier, you had 25, 26 songs for this record, and you kind of whittled it down to eight. So was that split intentional that you said, hey, I have half of these songs that are kind of looking towards this one general theme. The other half is looking towards, you know, outwards as a general theme. Was that was that intentional that you decided to do that? I think um, I don't think it was. I wasn't as aware of it then as I became afterwards. I mean, I think it was more like there was certain stuff I wanted to make sure to address, and the record felt incomplete if I didn't cover it. But not not really. I mean, it kind of just kind of just happened that way. Um, what were those certain things that you wanted to make sure the record addressed? Well, there was a lot of domestic stuff, you know, and being a dad and being a partner. And I think about that thing of like when I was working on like the publicity materials and how to share the record with people, that phrase like, you know, trying to make good choices in, in bad times came to mind. So there was definitely stuff like that. Um and, uh, you know, the title track is a love song to my kids, basically. I mean, it's that simple. So, like, I think it's more, it was more like, a, and there were certain songs de- that didn't make the record that I did feel like were maybe stronger songs even, but they just didn't fit in musically or whatever. But there's a bunch of stuff about being a in a relationship and how to do that and trying to you know, trying to grow the fuck up and, you know, like, um, uh, and then, and, and then I did want to express some of my, you know, sorrow and anger about the state of the world in a way that isn't annoying and, you know, but like, and there's the punk rock thing in a way, like, <laughs> you know, but in a very, very different musical form, but you know, a song like Hide in Plain Sight, or even New Quarantine, but Hide in Plain Sight, which is about a bunch of kids like doing like their own DIY like mystical ritual to call down the forces of the tree forces to, you know, presumably or hopefully kill all the adults so they can make the world <laughs> properly this time. You know, like those kinds of feelings. I wanted to I wanted to express that stuff, you know, and just so it was a mixture, but yeah. It's cool that track stood out to me and hide and seek as well for a particular reason. You're talk about this record dealing with sort of these coming of age issues, uh being a father, 
uh, growing up, as you had said. Mm -hmm. And and this track particularly focuses on, like you said, young children kind of doing these occult rituals uh, to kind of remake the world in their kind of child's vision, vision of a child. So what inspired that track and how do you think it plays into the record? I mean, I think that that was inspired by the feeling that I have that we are letting young people down. And I, you know, I'm old enough to count myself sort of outside of the category of young people. And so my sorrow and anger on their behalf is kind of the interesting, yeah. the energy of that song. Like, fuck, you know, you have every right to like remake the world, you know? And I do want, I, I really do want something new. Um, I think about that a lot. And a lot of the work I've done as a composer and even the opera stuff that I've done and, and the songs I write, you know, um, I th think a lot about what is what could the new be? What would that look like? And um, so that was, I mean, I think that was, yeah, that was kind of the motivation for that, um, that stuff. Just, I think it's, I, the last five years especially for me have been, you know, storms of myth misanthropy. You know, like ever since Trump got elected, this feeling of like, are people going to be able to make a world that works at all? And yeah, it's a good question. And, start, and starting to feel like, I'm not sure. Or yeah. what changed for me too with Trump is like, I start, I switched to thinking probably yes, to thinking, well, no, but maybe we're smart enough to overcome our, you know, like maybe our heads can fix what our hearts break or whatever. So I don't know, some all that kind of stuff. Um, that's where those, you know, those songs I think are coming from. And uh, hide and seek, hide and seek is just in a way like a musical homage to this great, great African guitar player named Gary. Wow. D apostrophe G A R Y. If you haven't heard him, his first record is called Malagasy Guitar, and it's just it's one of my favorite records. It's gorgeous. So, and musically, it's it's just an absolute. It, there's something they do in in music from Madagascar that where they mix twos and threes. That, and I don't even know. I, I literally, it's it's far beyond my capacity to uh, analyze and comprehend. I just sort of like revel in it. It's gorgeous and amazing. Yeah, Hide and Seek is just a really sonically adventurous track. It's cool to listen to. You use these superimposed fragmentary phrases from children's games. Mm -hmm. What source material did you draw from specifically? And, and why did you want to... So write a song like that what inspired you to write a song in that way well the basic like guitar part it was inspired by this daguerre yeah. kind of music um and then i think i was just um oh i know exactly what inspired me um the leonard cohen song dear heather are you familiar with yeah, that song great, great track yeah oh it's so amazing where he starts to spell the sentence at the end and 
this deconstruction of language. And so I think it was, it was, that was sort of somehow in there. Like I wanted to make a song that in its own way was just very deconstructed. Um, and also just rhythmically, it's definitely the most, you know, complex yeah, for song sure. that I've tried to do. There's all kinds of crazy Jason Sloda, who's a great, drummer who plays drums for Tao and the Get Down, Stay Down, did percussion on that track. And, you know, he's like doing crazy. He's, he's an incredible musician. <laughs> um, and uh, so, yeah, I think it was just an exploration of that, those textures, but also um, something new, you know, and that, like that spirit of Brazilian popular music, you know, like, which is so adventurous and colorful and like it's this punk rock spirit, but it comes out in technicolor like music. And, you know, it's sort of like that's, I think those are the things that were kind of in there for me. Yeah. It's a, it's a really great track. Thanks. I do want to ask you about the album closer. I don't think you understand which you described as expressing your belief, which was, a belief of T.S. Eliot's wait without thought for you are not ready for thought. I was curious to hear what that phrase, that quote means to you and how'd you seek to interpret it through that song? Yeah. Um, yeah, I love that quote. You know, it kind of goes back in some ways to Nepal to like, you know, the, the, this whole thing existed for uh, eons and uncountable amounts of time with no language as far as we know i don't believe that the universe is language based i'm not i could be wrong maybe it's a simulation that's totally language based <laughs> yeah totally <laughs> possible i'm open to it <laughs> it's a possibility <laughs> um somebody fix it um but uh, <laughs> but um but the silence at the bottom of it all yeah and that that's what I kind of felt like I got a little taste of in Nepal and like is just humbling beyond, you know, that's not even the right word for it. It's almost annihilating to a narrative sense of self, right? And so like we, the idea that you would say like, stop before you understand something i feel just feel like that's that's the state of grace for all of us and you know john keats negative capability that's what he talks about you know being able to basically tolerate ambiguity and you know people the people who are certain about things do the worst stuff people ever do <laughs> you know whatever yeah. it is you know and so um so I just, that's my, that's my like credo, my kind of like, but also there's, you know, um, it's frustrating because I'm a person where all people and our minds are geared, they're machines that we want to learn things so that we don't have to think about them again. You know, I know where the door to my studio is and I don't have to think about it when I open it. And so like, there's always this battle between knowing things and remembering that you you know don't know anything um so that song is just kind of 
trying to make a space for that. Um, I think we would be better off culturally if there were more value, you know, you value not knowing things. Yeah. What do you hope people take away from this record? Because in talking to you and listening to the record, there's definitely these messages in there that I think if people listen to the record and take them to heart, can, you know, we can collectively probably be better. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> well, that would, I mean, I don't have, I don't, I wouldn't even presume for that. I mean, I, the, what I really hope for is, so there's an expressive side, which is like, I have all this stuff and I need to, I need to express it for my, in a way for myself and hopefully in a way that's ambiguous and interesting enough for people to use in their lives as music. But honestly, all I want is for people to use the music in their lives. I don't, it's not like a, you know, a sugar-coated pill. I don't, you know, yeah, I would like for people to um, feel like, I would like for people to feel like, oh, that's something I felt before that bothers me that, you know, or I've been upset about that, or I worry about that, whatever. And to feel less, you know, I just feel that resonance. Um, but I, I honestly, like, I think all of us who make things, all we want is for people to use our stuff, take it and go away from me and do whatever you want with it. Just, I want it to be a thing in the world that people use. That is honestly like where I've arrived after doing this for a long time. I mean, I got a message from a friend of a friend who is in an African guy in Rwanda who sent a message to a friend, to my sister actually, and said, I love latecomers. I can't finish my morning jog without listening to New Quarantine. I don't know what the words are saying too much, but it's just like, it's my running song. Yeah. And I'm just thinking to myself, there's somebody in Africa running to this music who doesn't, I, like, I, I mean, that to me is what I think, what more could you ask for than that people would use your music in their lives however they use music? That's really, I mean, I'm not a message-driven, you know, I put it into the music because I'm ex sort of getting it out of myself. Yeah. But after that, it's like I wouldn't preach to anybody. So, yeah. One last thing I wanted to ask you about before we play some songs from latecomers. Uh, you've composed operas, too, right? Yeah. Yeah, I've done a couple of chamber operas. It's, What's that it's like? Great. That must be oh, man. interesting. It's awesome. Opera is really fun because it's sort of like it's like a spaz out of every possible medium you could have, you know, like singers and instrumentalists and lighting. And, you know, we've staged them, um, a couple of them. And, um, I really like it. It's, it's a good, and also you can address social issues in a more, you can try to grapple with things narratively in a way that you can't so much in songwriting. How'd that first come about? Cause I could imagine growing up playing music, for as long as you have, I'm sure you never imagined you would do something like that, unless I'm mistaken. But so, no, so how did that I, come about? What was it like? 
Yeah. Well, you know, it's funny because I'm a composer now. I gradually got to the point where I can call myself that without, yeah. you know, wanting to put air quotes up or whatever. And <laughs> yeah. like, honestly, like imposter syndrome, like I'm like, okay, you know, I've yeah. worked hard. And, but I'm also a songwriter. I'm really used to working with language and, um, and I do love, I love singers. I love theater and like the lights and the, yeah, I like a big, team a big bunch of people and being a composer in an opera you get to be like the kind of valued introvert yeah. amongst all these nuts you know and like yeah. so it's kind of like it kind of feels comfortable for me in a way like um and it's a very um it's so amazing when people sing and play your music like you know when you like i'm yeah. used to playing my own stuff but it's like you you all just played something i wrote it's like it just feels really profoundly wonderful and so yeah it's just a natural fit i think for me right now um because instrumental music is very abstract yeah you have to make a lot of choices about what you don't want to do otherwise the possibilities are you know they're just you could literally do anything you could have the performer take apart their instrument and you know knock on it or whatever you could use pitch and rhythm you could not use pitch and rhythm like so so it, there's another practical thing, which is like opera limits, like it, there's a libretto. So we're going to do that. And all the music is going to wrap itself around this through line. So in a way, it's also like, you know, that's makes it easier in a certain way. Cool. Yeah. Very, very cool. It's awesome to hear about something like that something that i don't really know that much about but it's cool to hear how a little bit about how it works and how mm -hmm. you got involved in it thanks all right so now we're gonna play some songs from michael's new album latecomers two tracks we spoke about new quarantine and chinese cruiser
All right, we just heard two tracks from Michael's new record, Latecomers. We heard New Quarantine and Chinese Cruiser. Everyone can get a copy of it at michaelzapruder.bandcamp.com. All right, now Michael picked some records. We're going to talk about them. Start off with Aldous Harding from New Zealand. You selected the song Damn off of her 2019 album Designer. Such a unique songwriter. I I could see why you you selected her because whenever she puts out a record, I pay very close attention to it and I listen to it thoroughly. And she is just incredible uh, lyricist, arranger as well. Really uh, unbelievable songwriter. I agree. I agree. I mean, I, I just, we saw her uh, a couple years ago, and she's also an inc- incredible performer. Yeah. And her band, I mean, they're very disciplined, and she really knows what she wants to do and cast this spell, and the show is, like, weirdly, like, very controlled, but not, but but felt gigantic in a weird, you know, like it wasn't yeah, oh, like, yeah, I, yeah, no, you know exactly what I mean? What she didn't saying, kill yeah. the anything. She, she just like crystallized the universe. And so we could all see to the ends of everything. <laughs> like it felt yeah. like that. I and mean, she's just so amazing. And that record designer in particular, I, I love, I love a bunch of songs, but that song, damn, there's a couple things. Her attention to detail, her singing is amazing, but like, she's got this melodic thing. She does, where she like, I think she goes, um, the old, it bickers with the fresh. She goes, the old, it bickers with the fresh. Yeah. And she like scoops. And it's yeah. like, it calls to mind like French music and Leonard Cohen. And like, she can tap into these things without losing herself. And it's powerful. And then there's that line, I'm sorry I was late and you didn't get your weekend. Which is like, that's my favorite kind of lyric writing. It's just utterly plain spoken. I have no idea what she's talking about. What does it mean to not get your weekend? And all of a sudden, like a million, like these scenarios pop in my head. Like, oh, were they going to, she was coming from out of town and she was late. And so like the person she was going to meet couldn't go to this, couldn't make the ferry or couldn't make. And I don't know. And again, it's like that ambiguity of like. And I don't want to know because it's so much bigger because, but it's so plain spoken. I just love it. I think it's yeah, brilliant. That's that's funny because whenever I listen to songs and read the lyrics, really try to process the lyrics, I'm kind of like obsessed with figuring out exactly what it means but I've been trying to work on letting that go a little more. <laughs> and it's funny because I, I talk to musicians, I talk to artists, they're kind of like people to interpret it the way that they hear it or feel it, the listener. But I keep always trying to find out, hey, what's actually going on? But I need to let go of that and just attribute my own <laughs> no, meaning no. to it. It's, it <laughs> no, because that's great. That's great, too. I mean, that motivation, I think that close listening is great, too. Yeah, yeah, totally. Um, 
But that's such a beautiful song, and it's so yeah. simple, that little piano thing. And and then it has that little melody at the end they bring in. This little, I think it's a clarinet, and I don't know what, yeah. Gorgeous. Gorgeous, gorgeous song. Another gorgeous song. Mm-hmm. Kate Bush, Hounds of Love, off of Hounds of Love. Yeah. Man, you know, it's funny. I had heard Kate Bush and, you know, heard a bunch of her songs, but I had never actually listened to Hounds of Love the rec- as a record um, until the pandemic. And I was briefly in this, like, record-sharing kind of Facebook thing, and somebody put it up there as the record to listen to, and... Um, I don't even know what to say. I mean, that song, that whole record, I adore it. And Queen, you know, she's like, Kate Bush is like my, my queen, (laughs) you know, (laughs) I'm like, you know, ready to bend the knee for Kate Bush. I mean, just the creativity and the optimism and the kind of like expansiveness. But that song has this cool thing it does where it's like, it, it, um, when it goes into like, um, wait, I'm trying to remember how it goes. Um, it goes into the chorus. Here I go. It's like it comes yeah. out of this low point, and it's like you feel like you could do anything when you hear that. It's the, the, the low strings and yeah, like totally. this chugging, and it's this empowering, beautiful, generous, just awesome thing. Um, and it's all based on like a one, you know, one four progression and like this cool, I don't know. She's just tapping into some deep stuff. I mean, I'm the five millionth person to say that about this record, which is, you know, a classic, but, um, that record just gave me so much comfort and joy at the beginning of the pandemic. I would run, like I run and I was running up and down this hill, you know, just trying to like generate, you know, some you know just keep going through the pandemic and that song would just make me feel like i could do anything and um i think that's that's amazing i love that whole record it's a classic for sure Silver Jews, my pillow is the threshold off of Lookout Mountain, Lookout Sea. Was David Berman someone you ever crossed path, paths with uh, as a part of the scene in the Bay Area? I know I spoke with John Vanderslice last year, and they had almost worked together a couple of times, and they knew each other. Did you ever cross paths with David Berman? I did. I was yeah in Nashville on tour with some so, uh, with another artist and um they were friends with david and he came to where we were having dinner and then he came to the show and um and then after that we kept in touch and i just wow. you know for me like david berman i feel like is there's is, he's second to none in terms of his songwriting and just his authenticity as an artist like um and so i would always send him my records 
you know, as just kind of a, you're the, you know, you're the artist that I look to. I, this is just a way of honoring somebody that I admire, you know, yeah. like I, and so um, we did. And also he gave a poem for um, Pink Thunder. So one of the yeah. songs on Pink Thunder is one of his poems from his amazing book, Actual Air. Um, man, honestly, I mean, when I listen to David Berman's music, he's the one, one person where I just feel like I wish I were a songwriter too. Like when I listen to Berman, <laughs> I am a songwriter, but, but compared to, compared to him, there's something about the ring of truth in his words that for me, um, is just the best and like you know i mean throw my thoughts like tomahawks into this world which i disown that's one of the lines from my pillow is the threshold and even just writing a song about sleep as a way into something more real than the world everything about it i love I, i'm just you know and it was just so heartbreaking when i heard purple mountains the last record I just, I, I was so worried. It just seemed like such a dark record and it's a huge loss. But anyway, that, and that album, Lookout Mountain, Lookout Sea, is filled with, I love that record. I love him too. He's great. What, what was it like composing music for a poem that he had written for Pink Thunder? It was, I try not to think too much about the poets or and certainly he had been sort of generous he was generous i think to everybody um actually to every other artist but i did i felt like he respected my music and liked my music so i wasn't worried about like and it was just so different from what yeah whatever he would do so um and honestly, you know, it was like all I could do to get that record done and to write those. It was very, very hard. So I think I didn't think that. It's about a dark it. and snowy secret, and it has to do with heaven. And what looks like sleep is really hot pursuit. I Zimbra by the Talking <laughs> Heads off of Fear of Music. Yeah. That, you know, it's talking about um, hide-and-seek from latecomers. You know, Ezimbra is like a similar, it's like a frenzied jam, and then there's this chant going on, and it's otherworldly and frenzied. And So Fear of Music and Remain in Light. Remain in Light is my favorite, you know, Talking Heads record and uh, second to none in my pantheon of records in general. Um, I like, I, you know, these, that, that period of Talking Heads music was so, um, just the collision between like the rhythmic intensity and just the sort of bizarre, the experimental, um, fearlessness of it all. And I remember, you know, when I was in, I think I probably got fear of music. I was in high school and, um. It was a little scary, yeah. that record and that song in particular. Ah, da, izimbra, da. You know, like, what, what's going on? What am I getting into? And um, 
I love, uh, yeah. So that that song is just so memorable, I and mean, that whole record is. But um, I like how that song kind of attacks normalcy in some way. Yeah, it definitely does. Part two, Resolution, by John Coltrane off of A Love Supreme. Yeah, I mean, that melody. Whatever. I mean, (laughs) I love that melody. It's so gorgeous. I don't know that I could even really talk about John Coltrane. You know, like, I, I mean, other than to say, like, I went through a long period when I was in San Francisco where I was pretty lost, like not a long period, but it was about a year where I was like still living in San Francisco, but some bands I was in had fallen apart and I wasn't yet, I was between phases in life. And I used to walk around, you know, listening to Miles Davis, Bitches Brew and listening to A Love Supreme um, on my, you know, headphones walking around in San Francisco and basically being like a totally like out of step with stuff. And, um, I mean, what can you say about those artists and that music? What could I say about it other than, you know, we should all listen to it a ton, (laughs) you know, but it's just a gorgeous, and that melody in particular is, sinuous and memorable and just I couldn't love it anymore I don't think amen (laughs) hell yeah And last, I'm pretty fond of this song, so I was pumped to see it. Uh, <laughs> Hoover Factory by Elvis Costello off of Taking Liberties, which is a U- U.S. only release, I think, this album. And uh, I think it's like a co- kind of like a compilation from what I remember, something like that. But I think I love, you're right. Yeah, I love this song. Uh, my favorite part is, you know, when he's like, was brandy you you know when he does that one towards the <laughs> yeah, yeah. end yeah just like totally. always rewinding to hear that part again great oh yeah great exclamation point but tell <laughs> tell me a little bit about why you like this song man i'm so glad that you i've never talked to anybody about this song it's sort of like <laughs> i bet if, i bet if you brought it up at enough parties you know everybody would be like i love that song too but it sort of doesn't get yeah it definitely attention does it. like it's just like this gem i mean i really loved elvis costello in high school in some ways this very center of the wheel for me songwritery wise because 
you know, high musical ambition, high lyrical ambition, kind of. But this song in particular, I remember listening to it one summer at summer camp, like a ton. And um, there's something about it that's so melancholy. Yeah. That just I identified with, you know, really deeply, just on a cellular level, kind of like. There's weird, this weird, like, like, I don't know what, it's like a guitar effect or something. There's a texture to the song that's pretty unique. And then um, the subject matter about like how, you know, this neglected building is going to be an architectural, all the rage um, soon, but isn't yet. (laughs) Sort of that weird temporal, like, like, I'm a little... Like I'm five years from now or ten years from now, and <laughs> oh, and then like the melody, you know, there's a lot of really beautiful, you know, um, yeah, it's not a matter of life or death, but what is, what is, it doesn't. I mean, it's really pretty. Yeah, and I'm a sucker for pretty melodies. Um, yeah, it's just, it's just. But I think the essence of it was like kind of hit me at a certain point of late adolescence, a little bit of this sweet sorrow kind of a kind of thing. Um, so I was really glad to find it on the list of songs to pick from. <laughs> Love the way he enunciates in this track totally. too. Great example of his distinct enunciation of words and how he incorporates that into his singing style, which always drew me into to him in particular totally Right, coming to the end of the show, but it was so great speaking with you, Michael. Latecomers is out now, everyone. You can get it on Bandcamp at michaelzapruder.bandcamp.com. Anywhere else people can get their hands on the record, or is Bandcamp the best location? That's the best one. I mean, I think it's available at the other at at, at the other usual suspects. Yeah, all streaming platforms. Um, streaming platforms, yeah. Um, but Bandcamp's great. Cool. So, what's next for you now that this record is out? You mentioned you went away for about a week to write for your next release. What's what's on deck for the rest of the year for you? Hopefully, finishing that record. Um, Finishing a new record. There's a there's a, a lot of tracks from latecomers that we didn't finish, um, and so we are. I'm kind of looking at those and seeing if maybe there's enough for like an EP or a, or maybe a couple of singles, um, for some time in the fall. Um, so I'm just working on that, but um, but mainly writing new songs and kind of trying to look ahead. Um, to uh to the next record and um now that i'm free of the latecomers octopus (laughs) (laughs) it wouldn't let me go um 
you know, it's kind of interesting to write songs because I haven't actually sat down to write songs. I've written a few songs over the years, you know, they come up, you know, but um, it was interesting to go away and sit and like be like, oh, I'm writing a trying to write a bunch of new songs or find a new record out of whatever scraps I have around. And so that's, I'm going to be doing a lot of that and then a bunch of other creative projects, but um, yeah, and just trying to get through the last, hopefully the last of this pandemic and get back in rooms with people again, play some shows and have Can't a wait party. for that. Can't wait. Yeah. Hopefully very, very soon. Yeah, totally. Well, thank you so very much for chatting with me. Everyone, get yourself a copy of Latecomers. Excellent Thank record. you so much, Tom. Thanks so much. You're, you're, you're awesome. This has been great. You're awesome. <laughs> this has been great. <laughs> Everyone, before we go, we're going to play one more song from Latecomers. It's the last track on the record. I don't think you understand.
to the bay Where some steps made out of stone were sinking in the grass We were all up at death's vacation house to play Oh, we were thinking he'd give most of us a pass And so I grabbed him by his musty smelling cloak in somebody else's hand. 